This podcast is distributed for informational purposes, and listeners should refer to important disclosures in the blog and the website for more information. Welcome to the WealthCast, where host Charles Bowinski and his guests share their global expertise and the most current information for your financial planning needs. Each inspiring interview will help you to maximize your financial stability and growth so you can have more time doing the things you love. And now, here's Charles. Hello and welcome to the WealthCast. I'm your host, Charles Bowinski. On this podcast, we bring you the information that you need to know in order to be a good steward of your wealth, reach your goals, and improve society. On today's podcast, I'm thrilled to have Kevin Cheeseborough as my guest. Kevin is a friend of mine and former commander of a nuclear submarine, as well as serving in his current role as leadership coach for executives in business and, and industry. On one programming note, Kevin and I, as I mentioned, are, are friends, and many of my friends refer to me by my middle name, which is Philip. This is an artifact of being a junior and my mother not wanting to have two Charleses in the house at the same time. So I hope you enjoy the show. Thanks again for joining us. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad to have you here and appreciate you spending some time with us today. Well, Phil, it's a, first of all, it's a real honor to be on, on your podcast and uh, you know just sharing some of my experiences through my times in Navy leadership, especially on a submarine. So yeah, real, real honor to be here. Well, thank you. And I've been looking forward to this conversation. Uh, you don't often get a chance to have a conversation about leadership with someone who's captained a nuclear submarine and, and experienced all the stresses that must go with that in terms of leadership responsibility. So you were kind enough to talk to me earlier about some things that you learned during your experience in the Navy. And I thought we could tick through a few of those because I sure. think the le- the readers or the listeners will find that really helpful. So why don't we just start, sort of start at the top and and work through the list. Yeah, sounds like a plan. All right, as simple as better. <laughs> One of the things that you mentioned in our last conversation was the importance of for a leader to train their relief and develop their relief. And could you talk about that for a minute? Because I think I think that's really important. Well, one of the premises from the very start, I mean, from whenever I was a junior officer on a submarine to the point where I was now commanding officer, I learned from the bottom up that my superiors were there and really concerned about how me how I was developing as a leader and as I went up through the you know through, through the ranks becoming engineering officer of a nuclear submarine and had well six division officers and about 60 people below me you realize that you, you, the most important thing I want to do is walk off that ship and have people trained well to go off and continue on that legacy of leadership and uh, being able to continue to lead the complex uh, piece of equipment. So as a CEO was particular, you know, it was, it was interesting because I sat there and I'm thinking, these young junior officers, 20 years from now, one of them is going to be a CEO. And you had to have that expectation and knowledge that, you know, I got to really be on game to make sure they develop in the way, the best way possible to be, you know, the, the, the best commanding officer. And it turned out Two of them did end up commanding a nuclear submarine at one point. Well, well, job well done. Uh. <laughs> well, you know, it was it was just it was one of those like it's always you sit back and say I'm not sure how much I contributed, but it, it obviously, and they had successful tours, 
you know, no ships running around. They didn't get relieved for, for cause or anything. So I must have done something right. And it was rather interesting whenever I entered the civilian world, how there was almost even that fear of training year, training relief at times. You know, that concern that, well, if I train them, they're going to take my job. I, you know, I, it just it just seemed to be like number 10, you know, on the list of 10 to, to worry about. So I've, I've used it even in my leadership coaching is, you know, what are you doing to train your relief? One of the things I thought was interesting is that you mentioned previously in our previous conversation about the Navy creating what I sort of as a, lay, as a layperson would think are short tours of duty, you know, a year and a half or two years on a submarine as a CEO mm-hmm. and then move to the next or new next assignment. There, there must be method to that madness, right, from my perspective. Um, but that sounds like that gave you the opportunity to iterate that process a number of times during your career. And I wondered what you learned through those iterations. The normal rotation for a submarine officer is three years on a ship, two years off. Three years is really for, for the family mental health at times, because you can only be gone so long and then you just get burnt out. Mm-hmm. And, and not just the, you know, the, the active duty person, the family, you know, puts on a lot of stress. I mean, Navy families really put on a lot of stress when they're gone. So that cycle is there to, to give that opportunity. And it's also for growth. You know, it's also the, the ability to go from being a junior officer ashore, and then you come back as a department head. And, and in my case, I was the engineering officer of a nuclear submarine and had about 65 people that, you know, that I worked with. And I was responsible for everything from the nuclear reactor to the ice cream machine. <laughs> and, and sometimes the ice cream machine had priority. <laughs> <laughs> Understand or understood. Yeah, and so that gives you the opportunity then to go and go to shore, go back as EXO. And the short tours are generally also instructive themselves. You know, they, they, they add to that, all that development process as you go through. And even in a short tour, that's where I got my master's degree and was able to then, you know, have time for that. So it's, it's designed to go do that, but it's all development. I mean, you go off to be, you don't go be CEO without being EXO. And EXO is standing back behind. It's kind of like being the chief of staff or the, we used to call him the head butt kicker in, the, in, <laughs> in some respects. You know, the good cop, bad cop, but the mm-hmm. XO, you know, but learning how, you know, how to even manage the complexity before you then had to stand back at that higher level as CEO and kind of know what all the tweaks are that are going on and leading that complexity. So it's all developmental. And, you know, you get to be CEO. I think I was, what, 38 whenever I got to be CEO. Which, whenever I look back on it, it's like, wow, 38 and you're in charge of a $2 billion submarine and 140 people. It's like, wow, that's pretty, you know, they really trusted me with a lot. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds like a stressful situation to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, the, the aspect about that, though, is you learn so much as you go through it. Technically, you're solid, but you're still there as the person who is nobody else to turn around to look at. You know, whenever you're out there and, and submerged and, and you're in those MCOM, you know, where you can't communicate with anybody, you're the person that has to make decisions. And that's just a little bit different at times than being able to pick up the phone and text somebody or text somebody these days and get, you know, back up. Sure. Oh, I can't imagine. One of the things that, that we talked about was, you know, you, and you alluded to it earlier, you know, being a three years on a ship with limited uh, contact with your family, what that means on the other side is you really get to know your 
your crewmates really well. And that, you know, developing, you, you had mentioned uh, in one of our conversations about developing emotional intelligence, li- mm-hmm. living together with these folks for, you know, 24 seven underwater in cramped quarters. What sort of did you learn about human nature and emotional intelligence, you know, through that experience? Well, you know, it's interesting because as I, as I probably about eight, nine years ago is whenever I first was introduced into the concept of emotional intelligence. And I looked at it and I said, well, I think we were really doing a lot of this whenever we were in that environment, uh, you know, being submerged for two and a half months and, and realized it was more formalizing the concepts that, that were there as far as self-awareness, self-management, and understanding other people's emotions and how do you manage relationships or self-awareness, self-management, social awareness and relationship management. And then I look back on it and I realized, boy, we had to do that from the very beginning. When you're imagining being with people 24-7, three meals a day, watching movies, celebrating you know, Christmas, Easter holidays, you really have to learn how to separate your emotions to not really create chaos whenever you're just feeling in that moment of, I'm just you know upset or whatever. You really had to learn, okay, there's a time to to put people under stress. And then there was that time where, okay, I need to really be able to self-manage myself. And okay, we're going to sit down at dinner and we're not going to talk business. We're just going to talk about, hey, what what movie do you want to watch? Or, you know, when what Liberty Port we're going to and, you know, where we hope to go visit and and being able to basically manage those emotions and then step back. To compartmentalize those yeah, it's a lot of it's compartmentalization. And then I think even in the whole issue of emotional intelligence is really managing your emotional energy. And we really had to, and I call it the, the emotional gas tank. There's only so much emotional energy in the gas tank. And you had to really siphon it out a little bit of time, knowing that, okay, you know, in a, in a moment, you know, when we're out there and, you know, in the Cold War, when you were out there looking for the, the bad guys, there were a lot of moments of boredom followed by a lot of moments of kind of panic. So you had, to, you had to save up that emotional energy to be able to be there. But you also had to be really aware of, the, of that social awareness of, of, of the people you're leading and just noticing because they were usually positive indicators that something's different here. And just looking at somebody's affect and being able to have that, you know, that empathic connection with them to say, okay, wow, I'm really sensing some, some anxiety, scaredness here. And, which generally led even all that, even to that aspect of asking the right question. You know, what's up? I see that, you know, you don't feel confident about going to periscope depth right now. You know, what, what's your sense? You know, it, it really was an important element, which now I include in, in most of my coaching. I always include an emotional intelligence assessment because it's really important for all leaders to have that ability to self, be self-aware and then self-manage, which are the two biggest keys to be able to go do that. That's helpful. You mentioned just a, a moment ago, or you alluded to the role of intuition in your job as CEO. And as a layperson, you picture, and I've never been on a nuclear submarine, so I'm imagining all this, of course, but you imagine electronics galore, lots of data, tremendous amount of input from your crew about where you're headed and what's what's going on around you. But you know, I thought it was really interesting that intuition still plays a role. Oh, Absolutely. And it's interesting, my Navy career, we went from analog fire control systems to these you know, super high-speed computer computer systems for fire control and sonar, things of that nature. But you still had to use your intuition to determine, does this make sense? 
what am I, what am I sensing about this? And it was still humans that are managing these devices and just using the intuition to sense, do I really feel confidence or am I sensing a hesitation here? Even though whatever that machine may be, or that device, the digital display is telling you, the real question, does it make sense? Does it make sense? Yeah, the, you know, I think the immediate reaction for most people is it's hard to imagine a situation where someone has more data than a submarine commander, right? So even in that role, you're forced or for the good of the crew and for the good of the mission or however you want to phrase it, you're better off using some intuition slash gut feel to help you know, frame your decision-making a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that, that I, th- I thought that was really interesting because in business, we, we have that all the time, right? We have you know, less data than you had, and yet um, sometimes folks are uncomfortable really leaning forward with their intuition. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you see that in your coaching program. Uh, well, I, I hear a lot of the term dashboard a lot. You know, my dashboard is telling me this, but my question will be again what is your intuition telling you Mm -hmm. and that is to me that is the biggest key is what is your intuition telling you about what you're seeing and you know what if that data is inputted wrong how do you you know how does your what is your intuition tell you about about that you know that that, that's the biggest key is just being able to step back and look at and say does this make sense and you know i found that frequently where i I usually had my one or two indicators I could look at and say, okay, these two indicate that truth is here. Yeah, that's the key. What indicators do you validate to be able to, you know, to be able to give you that truth? And, you know, it still came down to, I could look at two, I remember we had, we even had a manual plot. We had all this digital equipment and we had, we kept one manual plot whenever I was, when we had our fire control tracking party. And I'd look at that and I could tell it was a manual plot just person listening, writing down bearing rates and ranges and all that. And that was almost my biggest indicator of truth. And it was a manual plot. I had all these other plots, but sometimes, you know, the, the junior officers would be sitting there telling me, hey, you know, this we have a good solution on this contact. And I'd look over this plot and I said, there's no way, you know, there's just no way. So let's figure this out. And sometimes I would set, you know, even things like, you know, range bearing and uh, speed across the line of sight, you know, based upon the manual plot. I think even in business in the leadership world, you have to sit back and say, so what, what am I sensing this that really brings it, but don't get locked into the, you know, just looking at the data. And I see that a lot. In fact, sometimes it just harasses the daylights out of people below you. You know, you're looking at data that just, and asking questions before they even had any ability to, uh, to for themselves to see it and go, you know, figure it out. Yes, the ability to step back and see the big picture, even you know, as a as a CEO of a submarine or the leader of a business, has to be a, a key skill. It has to be, based on my experience of business, I see that clearly. Mm-hmm. But it just surprised me that with all the technical data, it's, it's still true as a submarine commander. Um, yeah. I think you you had shared Kevin a story with me about I believe it was about coming into a harbor or a port in bad conditions and a decision that you made to just wait. Right. Even though the data said you could proceed. Well, and this is this was one time you know, where I was stationed at Norfolk on Finback. We we're supposed to come into port, but it was just foggy, thick fog. And yeah, we have a radar on a submarine, and uh, but the radar repeater was not on the bridge where I was at the CO, which is top of the submarine. 
you're relying on a person below trying to tell you, okay, the, the course is good and, you know, coming up the channel. And, and one thing, in fact, it was, it was one of those fundamentals I learned whenever I was in, before you go to be a CEO, you go through a six month perspective commanding officers course. And, and one of the instructors there said, don't ever come up a channel unless you can see the next set of buoys, which basically meant, you know, you have to rely on Siemens eye. Mm-hmm not on what somebody's telling you on a radar that, okay, you need to come left a little bit, whatever, because that's how you navigate it up a channel. As you can see that next set of buoys and if, you know, the buoys on the right are drawing right, the buoys on the left are drawing left, then life is usually pretty good, but, but you can't see that. And there was no way. And I just, you know, I said, my intuition told me this is not a good idea to come into here. So we went back out past 12 miles from, from land and, just hung out until the, the fog lifted. And, you know, yeah. and it was the, the interesting thing is, is that even my Commodore, the person who was, I was in charge with, no issue. You know, you're the person who's got to make the decision. You have to be able to put eyes on target and see what's going on. And in most situations in the Navy, nobody questions whenever you say safety was the fundamental. Mm-hmm. But my intuition was, you know, I'm not going to bring this ship up here and you know, risk a uh, nuclear reactor hitting a uh, outbound merchant and, you know, sinking in the middle of Thimble Shoals. I mean, that's not a good idea. That's a bad outcome. Yeah. yeah it could, could ruin a few restaurants on the beach there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Further, you know, conversation we had, uh, you talked about the importance of taking care of your, you know, caring about your people and mm-hmm. their families. And I, I wonder if you could shed some light on that a little bit, because it's, I can imagine that being a lot easier if you're on a base where you're interacting with the families, mm-hmm. et cetera, and getting to know them. But uh, being out to sea for prolonged periods of time has to add complications to that. I, w- I just wondered how you went about doing that, the process of caring for people when you're, you know, stuck on a submarine in the middle of the mm-hmm. Atlantic, wherever you were. Yeah. Well, it took a lot of prep. The first, It started with prep before you left, prepping families for this. And, and the Navy had a, a reasonable infrastructure that, provided for families in preparing, you know, the sailors and and the, the families as far as pre, this is what it's going to look like when you leave. These are the issues that normally come up. How are you going to manage them? For every sailor, we made sure that their direct deposit was up, you know, that it was going to a bank account, that the spouse could get access to little things like that. Which yeah, sometimes, a little know, bit were, important things. Yeah, yeah, a little bit important things. Was there a person that they could then contact and reach out to? You know, as far as, you know, we always had an ombudsman on the ship who was, and actually she went to about six weeks, four weeks of school, where the Navy explained her, just all, gave her all, all background and just, here's how Navy pay works. Here's how other things work. And not that she was going to solve them, but she could direct them to the right person along the way. And then and there was my wife who was, who, you know, the CEO's wife had a big responsibility. She generally, you know, was the pulse on, you know, what's going on and the wives if there was an issue going on, call her. And, you know, I had times whenever my commoner was calling my wife and saying, we're thinking about hum- medevac or humavacing somebody off because of some issue with, you know, family and what's your sense, what's going on. And so that was part of it, but a lot of it was just prep, you know, just yeah. making sure everybody's going to get paid, that they can contact somebody um, and there was somebody could go to. And yeah, knowing, knowing Susie, I'm sure she did one heck of a job in that uh, role. Yeah, it was. Uh, I think I think she was happier to get relieved of command. <laughs> I, I, I don't doubt it. And one of the things um, 
you know, in your comments, you talked about sort of separating your, you called it the, the business of the ship versus the, the recreation of the ship, whether you're watching a movie or whatever you did in your downtime on, uh, you know, while you were at sea, mm-hmm. how, how did you, how did you foster the ability to have fun on a ship like that in this, you know, in between the stressful moments, mm-hmm. was there, was there a methodology or was it just gut feel? No, we, uh, you know, we set up uh, different events on weekends. Of course, you always had a deployment. You always had halfway night. Um, and the halfway night was putting on skits and doing, you know, things of that nature. And, and we were allowed to take a uh, near beer, you know, there's no alcohol in some reasons, but near beer was allowed. So even after six weeks to two months of being on the sea, even a, even a near beer tasted good. <laughs> 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 so there was that. And of course, depending on where you're going, if you went below the equator or above the Arctic circle, you had, you know, the ceremonies of the blue nose going past the, uh, the Arctic circle and then, uh, 65 North. And then of course, going past the equator, you had shellback. And so those were always events that were, interesting that kind of got the crew kind of jazzed and then there were other things we did just you know some some ships we had kind of like the underground newspaper which was usually uh, at least uh, edited by the xo or somebody to make sure it was <laughs> <laughs> and that was you know, we were in the days before the, the did too much of the digital world so you know nowadays you probably be worried about finding it on facebook or right something. sure i'm sure that's true so but we'd have those and you know just just little things that would uh, you know there was always a rivalry on submarines between the nuclear trade-off sailors and the non-nukes. And they used to call them the back-enders and, the, and the, uh, mostly like Navy T. Stoneman and the Coners because they were on the you know, the front end of the ship. And they'd have their little rivalries going on, you know, which were within the bounds. But it just kept things a little bit lighter whenever, especially whenever you're out there with sometimes just boring mm-hmm. before you get into the mission area and or – trying to find whoever the, whatever the mission is you're trying to accomplish. Sometimes it gets a little boring. So those things help. I'm sure they did. I I wondered the last thing that you mentioned that I think is, is certainly worth talking about is your role as a leader on a ship or in a business and the unintentional impact you can have if you're having a bad day, everybody goes through, you know, you're trying to make sure everyone else is having a great experience, right? As best they can be on a ship or in a business or whatever the case may be. And inevitably you run into rough seas, right? Yourself, whether it's having a bad day or some news that you didn't find helpful or whatever, Mm -hmm. whatever it might be. What do you recommend to leaders in terms of making sure that if they're having a bad day, they're not unduly influencing the rest of the crew or the team or, mm-hmm. or, the, or the firm. Yeah. And that is, that's one of the fundamentals I learned through sometimes the, the school of hard knocks when the head of the, sh- the CEO of the ship is having a bad day, it just resonates throughout the ship. I mean, there's this tension that, that would go along. Hey, the skipper is, you know, yelling in the control room. And so if he headed back aft, everybody was just kind of in that mode of, okay, tension. Mm-hmm. So I, I learned that from the bottom up that what that effect was. And so you really have to be able to monitor yourself. And it was almost developing that awareness of when I am at the trigger moment and knowing those triggers and sometimes even sleep deprivation was a trigger, mm-hmm. you know, it's going to come quicker here. So, you know, maybe it's time to go take a nap and uh, which i learned to do a lot of because you know you just sometimes you're just up for hours and then you just need to take a cat nap along the way but sometimes that's what you need you need to have that to keep that trigger from coming along but it was the awareness of knowing it knowing that okay 
I need to just go to my stateroom right now. Like, you know, it's, it's safe out here, but if I can, if I stay around, I am going to totally affect the concentration of the people around me. And they're going to get tense. Cortisol is going to flow and they're going to lose the clarity they need to have at these moments. Uh, you know, I learned from the bottom up, but whenever I got there, I realized that when I walked out of that stateroom, I won't call it showtime, but you know, there was a little bit of, you know, okay, you know, you're really challenged right now, but you got to put on the medium to happy face to, to, to be able to ensure that for the good of the ship, you know, the higher moral thing for the ship to go do that. You know, I, I work a lot with leaders say, well, isn't that violating your authentic self? I said, well, authentic self is just not wearing your emotions on your sleeve. I mean, authentic self is just holding yourself to your values and, and what's important. And if you have to, if you walk out and, yeah, you may feel like this is a really tough day, but you need to, the higher value is the effect on the people you're with. That has to become the, uh, the authentic person you are. The fact that you're holding that value of the good and the people. In my experience, you probably can do more good for your organization, whether it's a ship or a firm, by keeping that in mind on the really hard days. The easy days, when it's easy to to be you know forward-leaning and cheery and everything else, you're not going to see the value there as much as you would if you can keep people motivated and pursuing the mission when, th- when the chips are down. Well, even when the chips are up, you know, my, my biggest worry was you know, you've been gone for six months on a deployment and you know you're coming up the home stretch of Thimble Shoals Channel, and even I'm excited. Hey, I haven't seen my family. You know, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting the ship tied up and just sometimes just getting a good night's rest. And you get that excitement. You have to back off yourself too to keep everybody else in that perspective of okay, deep breaths. You know, we got two more hours to go. So far, things have gone well. We just need to need to be able to just keep focused. And so sometimes you can be in that high end too, and you got to, you know, you got to throttle it down and manage it with, with yourself and with, with the folks you're with so that, you know, you continue safety. Yeah. It sounds like it's all about being even keeled, you know, when you're in good and, and bad situations, mm-hmm. just trying to be relatively steady. Sounds like the, the way to go. Yeah. It comes back to that emotional intelligence aspect we talked about, you know, you, you really had to learn how to manage that and manage your triggers and know when it's time to you know go to the stateroom and, and maybe stick your head in the pillow and have a problem screen, but you know, but don't do it in front of the troops. You know? Right, I understand. Come back out again and just okay, got it. You know, deep breaths. We're doing all right. Well, Kevin, this is this has been really helpful. Um, you know, going from training your relief all the way through how to maintain your cool by stepping into the stateroom on occasion and even taking a nap. I think it's it's all been really valuable and. I hope that this can serve as a springboard for a further conversation, perhaps down the road. Sure. We can reconvene and talk about some of the other experiences that you had and and perhaps some of the lessons that you learned that can be shared with with the listeners and improve their their leadership capabilities, et cetera. So I just wanted to say thank you so much for spending the time with me. I'm looking forward to the next time. Okay, great. No, it was a real pleasure. And uh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Phil. And, and uh, you know, next time, hopefully it's around the corner. We'll look forward to getting together with you and Susie when the coast is clear. Great, great. Okay, well, thanks again for having me. You're very welcome. Take care. Thanks so much for joining Kevin and me today on the Wealthcast. If you'd like to learn more about Kevin's services as a leadership coach, please visit the show notes for this podcast. 
where you'll find a link to his webpage, as well as a complete transcription of this recording. Thanks again for joining us and have a great day. Thanks for tuning in to The WealthCast. You can get all the details on this episode, our guests, and everything you need to know so you can create and enjoy the luxury of financial independence by visiting us at moderawealth.com slash thewealthcast. And make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you catch every episode. We'll see you next time on The WealthCast. This has been a production of Twin Flame Studios.